0: Good morning, ladies. I left at home a little throwing up girl. And so I am thinking with you of the brokenness of the world and of the waiting and longing that we are doing here. And as we begin this morning, the question that I want to consider with you is this. What does patient fortitude mean? look like for you and me today. In our journey through the book of James, we are drawing near to the end. Let's quickly retrace our steps so far. James opens his letter with a word of exhortation to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for the reason that these trials are God's tool for making us perfect and complete lacking in nothing, James 1, 2 through 4. We are invited to ask God for wisdom and see God as the giver of every good gift, including the promised crown of life for those who love him. James exhorts believers to be hearers of one another and of the word of God, and not hearers only, but also doers who demonstrate authentic faith in action, in chapter 2, James urges believers to put off the sin of partiality and rather to fulfill the royal law of love. James asserts that true faith will work. It cannot do otherwise. In chapter 3, James explores the hazards of an untamed tongue and our need for wisdom from above. He goes on in chapter 4 to caution us to be on guard against worldly quarreling hearts and to humbly see our own sin and make our plans under the holy hand of God. And in the beginning of chapter 5, James gives strong warning to the wicked rich who would exploit others and ultimately face judgment for their injustice. Throughout this book, we have seen the great struggle of James's audience, both internally struggling against sin and temptation, and externally with significant suffering and need. And we resonate with that. Life is hard. Life after the great catastrophe, as Andy Nassali called it in his Genesis 3 sermon. Will it always be this way? How do we remain steadfast? In today's text, James 5, 7 through 12, we have a theme or a banner for a faith-filled life in a broken world, and that is patience. As we open, again I will ask, what does patient fortitude look like in your situation? Let's pray again, and we'll begin. Lord Christ, the different variety of suffering experienced by the women in this room is vast. There are financial struggles, relational difficulties, stresses at home, perhaps even persecution for holding to one's convictions. We wait, Lord. We wait for you. And I ask that our time together now as we look into your word would be strengthening to our faith and would enable us to persevere with patient fortitude. In Jesus' name, amen. In our passage today, I see four exhortations toward patience. And those are illuminated by three different pictures embodying patience. And all of this flows from one overarching reason. The Lord is coming soon. So here's the outline, which you can also find on your handout. One, patience in waiting, five or seven. Two, patience in standing, 5, verse 8. 3, patience in speech, no grumbling, 5, verses 9 through 11. And 4, patience in speech, no oaths, 5, verse 12. So let's begin with our first exhortation in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. We see that therefore, and it prompts us to glance back to see what precedes this section. James has just finished chastising the wicked rich for their oppressive treatment of the poor. And the previous verse says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, he does not resist you. Now James turns his focus back to his spiritual brothers, and he is acknowledging again that life is hard, and humanly speaking, it's not always fair. Although James strongly called the wicked rich to repent, he does not match that here with a war cry to rouse the oppressed to take their own vengeance. Quite the contrary. These suffering believers are called to be patient. But what exactly is patience? Just doing nothing? One dictionary says patience is a person's ability to wait something out or endure something tedious without getting riled up. Another dictionary says patience is the capacity for calmly enduring pain. Does this sound like apathy? Just not caring anymore? Or is it the embrace and acceptance of pain that Buddhist detachment promotes. Apathy looks at suffering and just doesn't care anymore. Buddhism looks at suffering and says, it's just fine. But Christian patience is neither of these. The dictionary definition, to me, that seems closest to what James means, comes from Webster's Revised, Unabridged Dictionary published in 1913. Patience, the power of suffering with fortitude. Christian patience groans in the suffering and looks to the one who is coming to make all things right. Please observe, as one commentator notes, that this call to patience does not preclude those who suffer from engaging in legitimate protest about their circumstances or taking appropriate action to try to change their situation. There are times when faith propels us to take action against injustice. But James's instructions here orient our hearts securely on the coming King, the one who will ultimately establish justice and righteousness. Next, James begins to show how we are to cultivate this strength of character through his first illustration shared in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. In this word picture, we see that patience comes as we understand the timetable of the harvest. Seasoned farmers do not plant a field and then declare the crop a failure when it shows nothing after waiting for a week. Farmers understand the timetable of fruit which calls for a season of invisible growth before the season of visible harvest. What does patient fortitude look like in your situation? Clinging to the promises of God in the middle of the invisible season of waiting. Our next exhortation to patience comes in verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The command, establish your hearts, means literally to turn resolutely in a certain direction. This is the word that describes Jesus' demeanor on his path toward the cross. Luke 9 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Despite appeals from his disciples, threats from his enemies, and the grief he carried at the thought of bearing the Father's cup of wrath, Jesus pursued an unwavering course. His face was fixed in the direction of the Father's will. So what are we to fix our hearts on? What direction should we be resolutely facing? Consider Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does patient fortitude look like in your situation? Establishing your heart to follow Christ and to do whatever the will of God holds for you. Again, this command is undergirded by a strong singular reason, the drumbeat in James's heart. The coming of the Lord is at hand. What would you say is your primary motivation in life? How often do we think about the coming of the Lord? I have to confess that I can be too often like the wicked rich we thought about in last week's passage, oblivious, forgetful of the fact that we are living in what James calls the last days. James 5.3. Now this might raise a question for you astute observers who note that we are living 2,000 years after this time that James calls the last days, And after James declares that the coming of the Lord is at hand. So how do we think about that? Here is an explanation from commentator Douglas Moo. What is crucial is to understand this nearness in the appropriate temporal framework. Salvation history. With the death and resurrection of Jesus and pouring out of the Spirit... The last days have been inaugurated. This final age of salvation will find its climax in the return of Christ in glory. But the length of this age is unknown. Not even Jesus knew how long the last days would last. See Mark 13:32. Every generation of Christian lives or should live with the consciousness that the arrival of Christ could occur at any time. We must also acknowledge that our understanding of how long or short this season of waiting is depends on our human temporal perspective. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What does patient fortitude look like in your situation? Calling to mind and living in light of the soon return of Jesus Christ. This brings us to our next exhortation to patience, this time demonstrated by forbearing to grumble against one another. Verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. If you have endured seasons of struggle, you can certainly relate to the common temptation of allowing our pressures and tensions to come erupting out in the form of fussing about the people nearest to us. This sin harkens all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where blaming and grumbling about others was the immediate response of Adam and Eve when confronted with the reality of their sin. And James has already cautioned us against this temptation in James 3.9 and in James 4.11. Do you think that this is a real and present danger that we need to guard against? Here in James 5, we are given a sober warning that ties together our sweet hope in Christ's return and our earnestness to put to death sin, because fully grown sin brings forth death, as James 1.15 warns. We do anticipate Christ's coming as the inauguration of final, fitting judgment for the wicked. But Christ will also look to the hearts of his people. As one commentator says, The soon return of Christ is not just an impetus to look forward to the judgment of sinners, but it is also a warning to examine one's behavior so that when the one whose footsteps are nearing finally knocks on the door, one may be prepared to open. The coming Lord is also the judge of the Christian. We want to be ready like the servant faithfully carrying out his master's business when he returned home. So what does patient fortitude look like in your situation? Humbly repenting of a grumbling heart and seeking to point out evidences of grace in one another instead. With his next words... James gives us a powerful way to deepen our own conviction and faith when we are in the crucible of suffering. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Actually, this is not just one picture, but more like James is ushering us in to a hall filled with portraits of all those servants of God in the past who have walked a path of patient suffering while bearing witness to the Lord. The verb in this expression, as an example, take the prophets, is used in other instances with the idea of take hold of or receive. We could understand it as, take to heart these stories of God's faithfulness seen in his human followers. Let's hear an invitation here for our own resolve and trust in the Lord to be bolstered as we reflect on stories. What are some of these stories? Certainly, we think of the prophet Jeremiah, whose suffering led him to write these words. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3. Or remember the story of Habakkuk, who got word about the judgment that God was bringing upon his wayward people. He responded, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olives should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk 3:16 and 17. The Bible is rich with these pictures. But if we take James's principle and expand it farther back through history, I think we will find the same benefit to our souls. My faith was stirred as we considered Adoniram and Ann Judson, missionaries to Burma, in our recent Global Focus. And just an aside— you should know that the Global Focus Connection is not just for families with kids. It's really a beautiful time for all of us, and I encourage you to make a space for it. It's a rich, rich event. Here is a quote from Adoniram. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. Or consider the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, missionaries to Ecuador, where Jim and four others were martyred by the tribe of Aucas that they were seeking to evangelize. Elizabeth wrote, Faith is not an instinct. It certainly is not a feeling. Feelings don't help much when you're in the lion's den or hanging on a wooden cross. Faith is not inferred from happy way things work. It is an act of will, a choice based on the unbreakable word of God who cannot lie and who showed us what love and obedience and sacrifice mean in the person of Jesus Christ. Or look into the story of Amy Carmichael, who gave her life as a single woman to the care of orphans in India. Or consider the lives of William Tyndale, Athanasius, George Mueller, David Brainerd, William Wilberforce. This is barely even scratching the surface. What common theme weaves through numerous of such stories of God's servants. They walked a path of suffering with faith-filled endurance. And what was the outcome? We consider them blessed. And now we see the rich fruit God brought through their lives. Well, maybe today... It doesn't feel like we are walking in a yet unwritten biography of faith. It's hard to envision that the story of our boring everyday lives could stand as a trophy of God's grace to those who follow. But reflecting on these portraits in the hall of faith, we see that simply trusting God and persevering in the place he puts you is evidence of rich grace at work in your life. What does patient fortitude look like in your situation? Following in the footsteps of other patient and hope-filled believers and running with perseverance the race that is set before us. Now James zooms in on one particular portrait of suffering, Here is the rest of verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Have you heard it said that someone has the patience of Job? This Old Testament story highlights the depths of shocking and seemingly meaningless Suffering, as well as the wrestlings of Job as he faced an onslaught of accusations from his so called friends. And this story serves as such a manifestation of steadfastness, our women's ministry theme this year, that as Pam said, we are going to devote our entire next semester of Bible study to delving into this book of the Bible. So I hope that you'll plan to join us, and I hope that you'll invite a friend, particularly if you know someone who is walking through a valley. What do we gain by looking at Job's story? As one commentator says, Job's is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. Job was not flawless in his suffering, yet he is honored here, and his story serves as a beacon of hope in our own suffering. We may struggle and wrestle in our faith, Yet suffering is no proof of God's judgment or displeasure. He has another purpose at work, a purpose that James opened his letter with and now, like bookends, returns to as he nears the end. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing, James one three and four. Did you notice that chord ringing here in our passage? You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, James five eleven. A purposeful God orders our suffering, not on a whim, or as though He were playing games with our life. James hangs a banner of purpose over what seemed like meaningless pain. Look at the hopeful conclusion James draws from the story of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What may we be certain of in the midst of our own fires of suffering? The Lord is compassionate and merciful even still. What does patient fortitude look like in your situation? Trusting the merciful, compassionate purposes of God even when you don't understand. Now we come to our final verse, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. As James moves into the final verses of his letter, he gives us a marker above all to indicate that he is beginning to wrap up his thoughts. But what do these words, a very close quotation of Jesus' teaching about oaths from the Sermon on the Mount, have to do with the kind of patient endurance we have been discussing? You can see that we are still motivated to keep our eyes on the coming judge. We are to abstain from oaths that you may not fall under condemnation, similar to verse 9. For the culture of James's time, what would have been the function of an oath? It provided a stronger rhetorical force to your promise. In other words, If you really want someone to believe you, but they are inclined to doubt your integrity for some reason, you appeal to a bigger, more impressive witness, whether that be heaven or earth or Jerusalem or your own noggin, which are all examples that Jesus uses in Matthew 5. In other words, taking an oath could be a form of verbal manipulation, a way to powerfully persuade others of what we think we need. But as Jesus points out, we don't hold the power of the witness. Heaven is God's throne, and the earth is his footstool, and Jerusalem is his king's city, and even your own hair is under God's control, not ours. To take this kind of oath is to overpromise your capacity. And ironically, as one commentator observes, the more oath-taking, the more lying. James says we shouldn't have any part of that. For suffering believers, disenfranchised and poor, oaths might have been an attempt to get a little more power a little more control when they felt and were actually very weak and needy. But when we patiently endure even a position of weakness and need, we will not use words to manipulate. We can speak a true yes or no and leave it as that, as an exercise of faith in Christ and we leave the results to God. Keeping our word is not a public show to get what we want. Faithfully carrying out what we speak is a mark of fear of the Lord and trust in the one who can move the king's heart like a channel of water. What does patient fortitude look like in your situation? being a woman of your word, and trusting God with the outcome. We are waiting and watching for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, often in the midst of suffering. Will it be worth it? Let's remember what we await. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, For this we press on in patient fortitude, knowing that when we have stood the test, we will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. May the Lord find us and keep us faithful. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we look for you. We wait for you. We ask that in our suffering, in the waiting and longing, you would grant us the strength of your spirit to watch and wait in patient fortitude for the coming of our great King. In Jesus' name, amen.